Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, September 30th, and today Teddy Schleifer is here to talk about the intersection of rich people and sports. Specifically, now that the Phoenix Suns are up for sale, which billionaire is most likely to buy the NBA franchise, make it their plaything? And later on, Alex Bigler sits down with our resident DC whisperer, Tara Palmieri, for another round of Feedback Friday. Alex digs into how Tara follows her nose to catch a story, how her experience informs her work, and we finally find out whether her name is pronounced Tara or Tara. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Friday, everybody. Weekend is upon us. I'm joined today by Teddy Schleifer uh, to talk about something sports adjacent. I feel like we often talk about sports adjacent topics here on the pod, Um, but in a way where they intersect with Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood. (laughs) And the players who run it all. (laughs) The players who run it all. In this case, uh, the players being uh, DeAndre Ayton, Chris Paul, and uh, who's the the handsome dude on the Suns, Teddy? Devin Booker. That's right, Devin Booker. How could I forget? So, Teddy, Robert Sarver yep. is the owner of the Phoenix Suns and the Phoenix Mercury, I should say. He's owned the Suns franchise since 2004, real estate developer. I think he bought it for like 400 mil back then. And he's basically been under a lot of pressure lately for just generally being a, a prick, uh, you know, making racially insensitive comments and, and you know, running a workplace not hospitable to <laughs> women and minorities, et cetera, et cetera. And I think Suns fans are happy to see him leave. But the next step for Suns fans is who will buy the Phoenix Suns? And, I, you know, we were just talking right before you came on, you know, I was reading a list of potential buyers and it's like everyone you cover all the time. <laughs> so who's on the list? So let's start with with the context here that this is early. These things can go slowly and then quickly Sarver has said that, you know, he's disclosed on the record he's preparing to sell the teams, but there's no banker on the deal, I don't believe yet. Everyone is in the in the wait and see game right now, which is means it's a great time to speculate wildly. Um, but we don't have to speculate that wildly because this is a NBA franchise that is gonna have a lot of interest. If you want to buy an NBA franchise over the last decade and failed, pretty easy to put you on the list this time. These things don't come up that often, right? Like every couple of years, I mean, the Timberwolves were up recently, uh, the Grizzlies, the Clippers, obviously, um, with uh, Donald Sterling and Steve Ballmer, which is sort of the comp that's often used for kind of heinous owner who gets ousted and then is <laughs> the company sold to some tech gazillionaire. So this is uh, a rare occurrence where you have a franchise that is also a choice team. I mean, obviously the Suns are now good, but also, you know, like, do people really want to own the Grizzlies or, you know, the Mavericks or the Timberwolves? Like, if you have the chance to own a team that is close to San Francisco and LA, that is good, that has enterprise value, this is a team to buy. Yeah, I mean, that's a it's a place that players want to play, I think. It's like a, you know, they... You know, their window currently might might be passing, but I mean, like, they should be contenders in the West. It's not like, you know, you mentioned the Timberwolves or, like, Charlotte. Yeah. I mean, like, this is a place where, like, people kind of want to be yep. uh, versus, like, oh, shit, I got to fly out to Milwaukee every other day to, like, sit courtside at my my team's game. Right, right. <laughs> and, and, these, and these are generally going up in value, too, right? I mean, so much of, of sports ownership equity value is due to the media rights. And the games are obviously becoming, you know, a bigger part of, of any kind of TV bundle. 
And, you know, you only expect these to keep becoming more and more valuable. So like the number that keeps being tossed around now in my world is around $4 billion. There is a a ton of demand. Um, And you asked Peter, though, but people who are kind of considering or we should be considering as possible buyers. A lot of the reason the Suns are selling right now is because of PayPal making a stink about servers comments. But let's talk about the more interesting scenarios with the disclosure that, of course, these may not happen. One name is Lorene Powell Jobs. Um, LPJ is a philanthropist. She's the widow of the late Steve Jobs. She would be one of the, I believe, the fourth female majority owner of the Suns. She is someone who actually likes basketball, which is not necessarily true of everybody in. She has season tickets for the uh, for the Warriors. She's like a legit fan. She shows up. She invested in WNBA a couple years ago, and she is a main, and this is a key point, she is a currently a minority owner of the Wizards, of the group that owns the Wizards and the Capitals and the Arenas. So she is someone who has a demonstrated interest in basketball, has relationships with the league and with other owners, which are a key part of getting this approved. It's not purely a financial matter. You know, Robert Sarver is going to have a lot of options and the league's going to have a lot of options. So it comes down to political relationships as well. Other names that come up, Bob Iger, who our colleague Matt Bellany has reported, at least has told friends, he would be interested in, in fronting a bid. The former Disney chief, I say would front a bid because I think one of the big questions for him would be, does he have enough liquidity for this? Does he have $4 billion? I could see a scenario in which he sort of is the, you know, the handsome man before the camera who is, you know, the front guy for a bunch of boring Wall Street or hedge fund types. But also Sarver isn't a majority owner. Like he owns, I think, like 35 or 40 percent of the Suns. But is because of that, is able he's a plurality owner and is able to yes. make the sale. And so the buyer theoretically could be the same kind of guy. There's a lot of creative ways to structure these partnerships. It would not be out of the question for for Iger to get it done, even despite not having enough liquidity. Some other names that we floated, I mean, people talk about Jeff Bezos. I'm a skeptic on that for a couple of reasons. You know, Bezos' name has been linked with other sports franchises for years. Um, He's never really seriously done anything. Like, you know, people talk about him buying the commanders from Dan Slater a lot. There's obviously no NBA team now in Seattle. And there's always like, oh, maybe Bezos would buy one and move to Seattle. It's never happened. And, 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 you know, it's not as if the thought hasn't crossed his mind before. Is he a fan? He doesn't seem like a big sports fan. I mean, he goes to to NFL games now. His current wife's ex-husband is Tony Gonzalez. So you see lots of photos of Lauren Sanchez, Jeff Bezos, and Tony Gonzalez at games. Amazon is doing a ton in the NFL. They have not done a lot in the NBA, though you would wonder, like, is that a conflict of interest potentially down the line to have a sports owner being involved in, like, potentially reaping the benefits of a sports media deal? You could probably manage that conflict of interest, but it's something to consider. And the other name that comes up is Larry Ellison, who is the uh, founder and longtime CEO, now executive chair of Oracle. Ellison wants an NBA team. He tried to buy the Warriors in 2010. Uh, he tried to buy the Clippers in 2014. He tried to buy, I believe, the Grizzlies. I think this is his fourth or his fifth attempt to purchase an NBA team, and he keeps getting rebuffed. Why? It's a combination of things. I mean, part of it is Ellison, you know, he just lost the sweepstakes. Like, I mean, there's people who offer more money, people who, you know, have better liquidity, people who have better relationships. I would say the main reason that Ellison wouldn't get it is he is sort of an outrageous, provocative guy. And as someone was texting me yesterday, like the idea that they were going to replace Robert Sarver with someone who could drag the league into more headline risk, you would think that Adam Silver would recoil at that. But those are some of the names that are being talked about. Profits aside, or maybe profits is is what matters here, but like, do you have a sense that like old rich guys would rather own an NBA team or an NFL team? Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, I mean, NFL is still, you know, is still king, um, though 
it's it's more fun. I, I can't. I mean, what do I know in terms of whether or not it would be? What is more fun? I mean, <laughs> I, like the, owning an NBA team is a lot of fun. Like you can just look at Mark Cuban or Ballmer, yeah, see yeah, Ballmer yeah. at Clippers games. <laughs> yeah, like an NFL team, you get box seats and it's and it's fun. But like I feel like, I feel like the NBA owners, maybe outside of like Jerry Jones in Dallas, like NBA owners are just these like masters of the universe who seem to have a great time courtside. Like I remember I was at a conference where Ballmer was speaking maybe five years ago. And, you know, the reputation or the, or the consensus on the Ballmer purchase of the Clippers in 14 was that he overpaid. There was so much commentary that Steve Ballmer is an idiot who overpaid for the Clippers. And Ballmer sitting on stage at this conference in his characteristic, you know, Energizer Bunny fashion, Ballmer goes, I'm going to try and impersonate his voice here. He goes, he goes, you know, everyone says I overpaid for the Clippers, but relative to the amount of fun I had, like re- yelling the word fun, <laughs> I definitely under underpaid. And like, that could be true. Like Ballmer has having a great time, you know, and he goes to every game and, you know, the Clipper and he sort of is at the press conference with Kawhi and PG and like talking about, you know, his deal making behind the scenes and like. I feel like you see that more in the NBA than the NFL. Yeah, they do seem a little like they feel a little more remote in the NFL. Like they're up in their box, they're guarded, and like the you know the the owner guys in the NBA are like courtside. Um, I, I actually do have one last question for you. Sure. Um, on the LPJ front, um, Lorraine Powell Jobs. So if she owns a stake in the Wizards, the the Zards, uh, who are terrible, does she have to sell that pretty quickly to make a bid? For the Suns, if she wants to, or can she like kind of put it in a like a <laughs> escrow or something while she goes after the Phoenix? The presumption would be that she would have to sell her minority stake. I mean, I think it's about a twenty percent stake. At least it was at purchase. I can't see a world where you'd be allowed to own part of one NBA team and be a majority governor of another NBA team. What's your NBA team? I'm a Sixers fan, um, which is like half front. I grew up in Delaware. It's half front running. You know, Peter on the West Coast, it's amazing. We get off work. At like five or six o'clock, turn on TNT. I will watch any game that is on. Do you have League Pass? I do not. I just I I'm I'm just you know a common man watching whatever uh, TNT serves me, which is I feel like on a typical <laughs> November, it's like always the Nuggets. I feel like you always get like Nuggets Blazers. It's like the TNT game at seven o'clock. My NBA friend thread, Tim Miller, Jake Suski, um, Robert Jones. They love the Nuggets and the Blazers. So they would disagree with you. Um, shout out to those guys. The Nuggets and Blazers, I feel like, play each other 15 times a year. It's like every like playoff <laughs> franchise. I know they only play like twice a year, but it just feels worse. Great fundamental passing with both of those teams. Great at fundamentals. Yeah. Love, love the the Jokic no looks. Um, well, I'm a I'm a Allen Iverson fan first and foremost above all else. So I respect your Sixers fandom, uh, even though they are a team I don't necessarily like. Trust the process. Trust the process. All right, Teddy. Thanks. You bet. When we come back, Alex Bigler is here with Tara Plumeri for this week's Feedback Friday. Welcome back, everybody. This is Alex Bigler, and joining me today for our Friday segment is the one and only Tara Palmieri. Tara, first of all, this is my very public apology that for the longest time I was saying Tara Palmieri, which turned out to be unequivocally false. No, no, stop, stop, stop. Alex, it's just Tara. What? 
You got it wrong again? Yes. No, but we had this kind of- Well, I, no. I, I always start this conversation with, I really don't care what you say. <laughs> like you don't have, you can say Tara, Tara, Tara. I, my mom is from Jersey and she calls me Tara. And so I call myself Tara, <laughs> which sounds like people don't, when I talk to customer service representatives, they're like, Tyra? And I'm like, I love Tara. I think it rolls off the tongue. Tara. Mary. That's a superstar name. I, it's totally fine. You can call me whatever you want. And I'm so sweet that you would even ask. But I just have to, I have to call you out <laughs> if you're actually going to talk about it. <laughs> I just wish everyone could see my face right now because I'm like flabbergasted, confused, upset, happy. Like I'm going through all of the emotions right now. Of grief. <laughs> Okay. Well, anyway, acceptance. I am here. We've moved over to acceptance. <laughs> so all the stages. I am here with my favorite political astrologer, Ms. Palmieri. How about we call it that? Thank you so much for joining me on this lovely Friday uh, morning. Thanks for having me, Alex. I appreciate it. So I was really excited when you joined Puck. I think you knew that from the first minute you joined the call and I was like, hi, I'm Alex. I'm so <laughs> excited you've joined Puck. You cover politics in Washington in a very different way from a lot of your peer group. And part of that is because you bring a little bit of teeth to it. You're not afraid to say things that other people might not cover. Um, and what I was really interested in when you and I kind of got to know each other was your previous experience. And I would love if you could tell your listeners how your previous experience, you know, you worked for the New York Post, you worked for ABC News, you've done all sorts of amazing things. How does your previous experience inform how you report on DC? Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I always kind of saw journalism as a service, as like a muckraking, as a kind of willing to go to places that other people feel uncomfortable. And I think that was the appeal for me in the business was the conflict. It was like the digging up the dirt and going through. And yeah, it's that period of history was considered sensationalism. And there were a lot of, you know, criticisms of turn of the century, Upton Sinclair's book, The Jungle, but there was a lot of like progress because of it. And I'm not saying that I'm necessarily a progressive, but I kind of like to go to the uncomfortable places a bit in journalism. And I know maybe you don't see that in my work every week, but I think it's just in my bones and my DNA that I like that. And um, I've always really appreciated investigations. And even though the Washington Mall isn't necessarily like an investigative piece of journalism every week, there's kind of a lifting up some of the carpets, seeing what's underneath, checking out what's in the, what cobwebs are here and there, what's percolating, what are the concerns, anxieties, machinations happening, low key, that maybe aren't percolating enough for comfortable conversation at the dinner table yet. You know, that kind of comes with writing about personalities and people because they have their ambitions and it can be a little uncomfortable and they can have their own planning and, you know, everyone in DC, at least even at the staff level, they're kind of thinking about what's next, what's next, what's next. And so kind of charting out those paths, especially for people all the way at the top, it can be like anxiety inducing. Like everybody's like, what's Pelosi doing next? The, the fact that like hundreds of people are like, have their stomach in knots wondering what's going on is kind of an incredible thing. I think that what you do really well is you 
look for the realities of what's going on with the situations and with the people involved and you're not deferential to them and I think in a way that they are not used to and that's kind of where your reporting comes from and why it resonates with so many people at least that's how I feel as a reader when I when I read your work Oh, I appreciate that. So much of your work is sort of following your nose. Mm-hmm. Even when there's a million people telling you there's not a story here, you continue to follow your nose because you know there's a story. Yeah. How have you learned to trust your gut on that front? Like, what are some signs that you look for when you're investigating? That's a really good question. I mean, I've got a few leads right now where um, my gut says there's something there. And I haven't been able to fully like report it out yet or fully hatch it, but it's like kind of in the back of my head. And despite the fact that people are telling me, no, 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 that's not right. You know, every time I get on the phone with someone new, I sort of pick around it, kind of subtly bring it up, see if there's something there, if there are likes, maybe there's another part of the story that I haven't figured out. This sounds like me when I'm trying to set up my friends, by the way. Yeah, exactly. Just kind of like picking at the scab, trying to see what's going on there. (laughs) Not to be too (laughs) gross. But yeah, there's definitely a part of me that like people spin and I've gotten better at dealing with the spin and unwinding it. But there's ways to kind of just keep looking and keep hunting. And, you know, you might get out scooped in the meantime, somebody else might get it. But if you have a hunch, you got a hunch, you know. Are there any stories that you're following right now or that you've written about recently or not recently that you think is very important and that you think people are not paying enough attention to? Okay. So I'm really looking forward in terms of like 2024. I've been writing a lot about the the possibility that Trump runs for president. And, you know, I think, and I'm sure you've heard this in other places, but like, will he concede in a Republican primary if he loses? Will he concede if he loses in a general election in 2024? Are we just, are we about to repeat history just four years later? Will there be violence? Like if he's indicted, what what will happen? I guess, how is it all going to play out? Like say Ron DeSantis really does take him head on and is able to beat him in a GOP primary. Does that mean Trump concedes? Is Trump able to convince his most loyal supporters not to support Ron DeSantis? Maybe that helps someone like Biden who's running against him. But I don't know. It's just there's so many unknowns when you have this wild card who does not believe in the, you know, norms of elections. And then you have all these people who are running for office right now and like secretary of state positions throughout the country and they can decide to flip electorates. But I just think like it's all going to play out soon. It's going to happen. It's going to be real time. All right. Well, I've got one last question for you, which is... um Matt Bellany recently asked a question in our Slack channel asking for laid back but still nice restaurant recommendations in D.C. When you're in D.C., where do you like to hit up? (laughs) Laid back but cool. My favorite is Red Hen. It's some of the best Italian food. It's um, in Bloomingdale Shaw neighborhood, but it's a bit off the beaten path from like the White House and the main sites. It's excellent. So when the marches start again in the next election, we can just hide out there and, and get some. Oh, totally. Food. Yeah, we could take shelter at the Red Hen and get the best pasta of your life. I also like Le Dip for people watching Le Diplomat in Logan mm-hmm. Circle and um, Barcelona Bar is fun if you're single and you want to pick people up. Happy hour. <laughs> and there's like a bunch of like crappy bars in the Capitol Hill area if you just want to like chat up some staffers and go to some bad fundraisers. But definitely would go with Le Diplomat and Red Hen. Those are my two favorite. 
I had fundraisers sound better than any Wednesday or Thursday night plans that I have. So maybe I'll, <laughs> maybe I'll try and make the circuit next time I'm in D.C. Yeah. Well, Tara, thanks so much for talking with me. I really appreciate it. And I hope you have a great weekend. Thank you, Alex. You're so sweet. This really made my day. Oh, good. I'm glad. <laughs> have a great weekend. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear on this podcast, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. You can visit us at puck.news and on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you next week. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 